Hi, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcast. Today I have a guest, uh, Stephen Powell, MD. He's the he's an emergency uh, physician, got his undergrad at UAB in emergency medicine, did his residency here at Wake Forest School of Medicine in emergency or an EMS residency. He was the assistant medical director for Forsyth, Stokes, Davey, and Randolph County as he was getting his residency finished up. He's an adjunct faculty um, in emergency medicine here at Wake Forest School of Medicine, recent recipient of a teaching award for residency, and now serves as the Code 44 medical director. Um, so welcome, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Uh, just to clarify, I, I went to UAB for residency, and then I did a fellowship at, uh, in EMS here at Wake Forest. Okay, thanks um, for so that. Subtle thanks. little nuances of... of yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I wrote a lot of stuff down. And <laughs> kind of, but I appreciate you being here. And, and, you know, I wanted to, I guess, start out first, explain what the Code 44 medical director means. Uh, so this is something I uh, stumbled into. I was uh, fortunate to get a appointment here after my fellowship. Um, I had a very good experience and a very positive um, mentorship here in the EMS faculty. And um, Dr. Roy Olson was uh, one of my mentors, and he um, retired, actually, the year I came on staff. Um, and uh, one of his legacies was the Code 44 team. And the Code 44 team is uh, the hospital quick response uh, team in non-patient care areas. So typically, we have people with the level of EMR responders, so very um, basic uh, EMS services where they can do things like CPR and attach an AED and basically get you the, the important life-saving things when you collapse or when something happens. And those people are typically security guards and officers um, uh, who volu- essentially volunteer to do this. I mean, it's a high-stress job, and it's not part of what they normally do. And uh, I have the ability to teach them and, and help them as a medical director, and uh, I got to take over that from from Roy, and uh, it's been a, it's been a a good year so far, especially with us uh, having the new birthing center. So, right. Well, uh, tell us some about the exciting and uh, adventurous types of training you get to do. I know you go on these camping yeah. excursions and do some of that. So, <laughs> so I, I, I uh, so I do work. My primary job is I work in the emergency department, um, and so I work, uh, you know, day in day out in the emergency department, um, just a, exactly what you'd expect. Uh, but I, I like exciting things. I like things that are uh, that make me want to come to work every day or even split up my day-to-day job. And so what I do, I work uh, with NASCAR. Um, I work with uh, wilderness medicine, um, you know, various aspects, whether it's teaching. I do some flight stuff um, with critical care and transport. And so with wilderness medicine specifically, um, I uh, you know, I just like teaching. I think most of it is this application and, and having people who have some kind of a medical background or don't. Um, just having the ability to help somebody in a wilderness or austere setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, actually, uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Seth Hawkins, is actually putting on this big EMS uh, seminar and summit actually this this weekend. Okay. And so we're going to go out to you know the Linville Gorge area, and we're going to teach uh, students and fellows, physicians and non-physicians, basically people how to respond to a medical emergency in the an austere environment. So you you take a stick and you make a tourniquet. You take a you know, make a splint, you how to extricate people when they're five miles in the woods. It's really exciting. Wow, that does sound fun. Well, back to the emergency department. I mean, that, you know, you like variety and yeah. you like excitement. <laughs> and that, you know, most of the people I know um, who, who play that role are, you know, fit this profile of just love to be in the action, love yeah. to make quick decisions. Yeah, medical and, stereotypes are typically real. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, 
just kind of walk us through a typical shift in in the ed because I, I mean we see this on tv and we see the trauma i mean and and yeah. i guess if you can feather in some of the things like that the we raise anatomy drama yeah well no <laughs> not the not the not that part but some of the challenges that we face here locally sure. is, you know including the opioid epidemic that we hear so much about sure. and some of some of those things absolutely well i mean i've always wanted to my wife is equally curious um i've always wanted to wear a gopro on top of my head and just <laughs> if there wasn't a hippie issue obviously but and just walk around and just for so people can see how how crazy it is it's crazy to work in the emergency department especially a busy emergency department i mean last night i walked into shift and there was 10 people who had checked in the last hour mm-hmm. who all have clarified that have, have designated themselves as having an emergency and my job is to walk around and see who's dying first and go there mm-hmm. and uh, it's incredibly stressful and you know, uh, just within the last uh, two or three shifts, I had a person who came in who overdosed on heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that is a, that is cer- certainly real. But, I mean, it's a, such a variety. I mean, I had a, a lady who, you know, overdosed on, on salicylates last night, uh, aspirin toxicity, who mm-hmm. was critically ill. I've had strokes, heart attacks, gunshot wounds. I mean, these, these are a common ED shift. But certainly um, I have seen – I work in primarily in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, but I also work here in Winston-Salem at the, the, the Baptist Medical Center. Uh, but specifically, Hickory is on the front lines. If you look at the charts for opiate addiction, um, and, and we're, we're seeing a lot of this, Hickory, North Carolina is certainly one of the places, and I see quite a bit um, of, of of this on a daily basis. Yeah, you're at the tip of the spear in yeah. all this. Yeah, I mean, just, and, and, you know, I had a guest, and you listened to some of it. Uh, Tom Reed was here yeah, this he's week. Very energetic man. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. And, uh you know, he, he brings us with some communication tools that he's out peddling, which I think I find to be very valuable. And, and I just uh, wanted to relate some of that back to what you do and how you communicate with these patients. I mean, you're doing triage. Sure. But you're also trying to communicate and find out facts from people. And, Absolutely. And, and how do you go about getting the truth? And especially when, when things that are illegal are involved, I mean, it's got to be a challenge. Sure. I mean, I think most of us, um, the idea of asking one of your friends to use heroin uh, is, is crazy. I mean, to think, I, I wouldn't even know how to buy heroin, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or let alone fix it up and inject it. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it, people come in and often they will deny this initially, but they'll have the classic toxidrome. They'll have pinpoint pupils, shallow respirations. They'll have low oxygen saturations. Uh, they'll be lethargic. You know, these things are classic when you see an opiate toxidrome. And, uh, you know, so you give them a reversal agent and they wake up and you're like, well, hey, buddy, I mean, I know you're saying you didn't do it, but I think this actually happened. And typically what happens is either they they do admit to it um, and and family comes and they say, yes, they've been having a problem um, and uh, or they deny it and they they get angry and leave. I mean, and that's just the reality. But whenever I want to really um, talk with somebody, I mean, I think it's just understanding that I'm not mad at you. You know, it doesn't affect me. I'm not going to judge you or treat you any differently. I just want to know so I can help you. Because if, it, if you did inject heroin and we reversed it, well, then I know what was causing your confusion. If you did inject heroin, then what are you struck in the head last night? Do you have an intracranial bleed? Do you have sepsis? Mm-hmm. Are you having a stroke uh, or head? You know, so I think those things, just approaching it from that perspective of saying, listen, I just want to take care of you. I just want to help you. Um, and fortunately, I work in an emergency department where we have a very 
um, good um, psychiatry department that is very um, aggressive about treating people and getting people into into medical detox and, and rehab and really helping these people. And I think we just have a non accusatory environment that is very positive for getting people help. I mean, because a lot of people you see who are addicted to opiates, or at least in my my experience, are sometimes start off as 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 what we would think of as normal people. I'm doing quotes in the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, you wouldn't expect somebody who had back pain, who was prescribed Norco and just persistently had back pain. Maybe they didn't do physical therapy. Maybe they didn't, or maybe they did, you know, but they just persistently had this. They started getting hooked on, or- on Norco. And then all of a sudden, a few years down the road, they're injecting heroin to get relief. And so, I mean, that's real. So Yeah, I mean, that that is seems to be the progression. And, and we've tried to destigmatize it by calling it opioid use disorder instead of drug addiction. Sure. Um, so we're, we're, you know, the language is trying to be non-accusatory as well. And, and um, so, yeah, wow, you're, you're right there <laughs> in the trenches. Now, how, what percentage or uh, how many patients come in on a shift that aren't really emergencies? And I know they come with the, you know, in the, it's an emergency in their mind. Sure, sure. But how do you handle that? So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a big deal. Well, it's 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 a very difficult question in general. I think that we are an emergency department, and when you come to the emergency department, the idea is that you feel that you're having an emergency, and we should treat it as such. And my job as an emergency physician is to look at you, decide if you're having an emergency, stabilize you if you are, and then get you to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, people come in with a sore throat or they stump their toe, which is obviously not an emergency. Um, however, um, I do recall reading a book. Um, uh, I believe it was Better by Atwal Gandhi. Um, and basically the idea in that, in one of the, the, the statements was that when people come in, that the thing that's bothering them in that moment is, is they are so concerned about that. They are worried to death about that. And it may be minor. It may be minor, especially to a physician who's had all the training that I've had or a physician has had. But to them, it is the most important thing. And, you know, for instance, I had a guy who came in with a, a headache and, or had swelling, and he, he thought that he was having an intracerebral aneurysm, a brain aneurysm that can pop and rupture and die. He was just having a little swelling over his forehead on the skin, and that does not correlate, okay? <laughs> but his friend had just died from this, mm. and he didn't know. He's not a physician, right? I mean, so how would he know? But he was so deathly worried about this. Was that an emergency? No, no way. Mm. He was in fast track. I went and saw him. I discharged him in 10 minutes. But what I did, I didn't do any therapy. I didn't do any kind of CT imaging. I talked with him. I reassured him. And I said, "You, I, this is not an aneurysm. I think you're going to be okay. And he felt so much better. And so that's that's kind of my approach. It's my job to reassure people, uh, to, to tell them they are or not having an emergency, and then treat them as such. Yeah, I think that's important, especially as we look at technology and how it affects healthcare, and we talk about AI and robotics and stuff. And you just can't remove that human element of reassurance because no, no. sometimes that's all they need. No, because an algorithm would have looked at this and said headache, swelling, aneurysm, and scanned his head, done a CTA, done an LP. I mean, all these unnecessary things that just using gestalt, using just talking with the patient, getting the the history. I mean, you can get 95% of what comes in. You just you just talk to somebody. I made that number up. You can just talk <laughs> to somebody, and you can just figure it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. Well, I mean, it, you know, I, I noticed kind of a personality style of emergency medicine physicians, and, and to me, just talking to you as a neighbor, Stephen was my neighbor for, <laughs> for a couple of years, and uh, 
you know, you don't really fit that stereotype from what, you know, some of the folks I've dealt with that you're very, you know, uh, I think deliberate with your delivery of your communication. And I think that that's, that's a stereotype that, that I do see. Well, uh, well, I mean, I, I will say I, I am, if I had to, if people had to lump me in a category, everybody thought that I was going to be internal medicine uh, mm-hmm. in residency. And, and so I did kind of go a little, I did deviate a little bit from maybe the expected path. Um, but I think it is because I love procedures. I mean, I love, I mean, it, it's, it sounds morbid to a person who is not a physician, but I mean, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. I, you have to love what you do. I mean, I love doing procedures. Um, mm-hmm. There's not the greatest thing for the patient, obviously, but that's what is exciting about my job and keeps me from burning out and keeps me day to day. Um, but I do think it's important to have very direct communication and also to be very honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know when I first, uh, you know, started working in the emergency department as an attending. Um, I've only been doing this for about a year, you know, or yeah, about a year as a full-fledged fellowship trained attending. Is this being incredibly honest and being really compassionate? And I think that patients very much respond to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is this whole realm of like uh, medical legal liability, right? Old person's having chest pain, you should admit them because if you're wrong, they'll sue you, right? But I find that people, you know, just respond to really well. Hey, as a physician, I do not think you're having a heart attack. I know you have XYZ risk factors. I know that this, but I mean, I don't think it is. I mean, that's, if you want my opinion and people respond to that very well, or I do listen, I know your heart attack number is negative, but I think you need to come in the hospital. This is why. And, uh, people will just really respond to that. And they, they respond if you can see you care. Yeah. And I think you're right. Being honest and not accusing and not having what, uh, is back to Tom says, you know, the power struggle, the power dynamic. And sometimes you see these TV shows where the ED daughter's just berating the patients like, ah, you know, and, and, you know, you're, you're creating that power <laughs> dynamic that's not going to work. Yeah. Power trips are fun for sure, <laughs> but, but I, I haven't found that yelling at patients uh, it <laughs> goes over well with administration. Well, I think that's right, and, and you know, again, I'm I have a few friends who are emergency uh, doctors, and and they all have very comforting yet direct delivery of the honest sure. words that come out of their mouth, and well, it's you know, and it gives you a sense of uh, you know reassurance, absolutely, and and it it makes you pay attention and and it makes you feel like you're being listened to as well. Well, I mean, if you think about it from this perspective, when people go see their family doctor, they may have seen their family doctor for 10, 15, 20 years. I meet somebody and within five minutes, I'm supposed to have their trust. I'm supposed to have their, I mean, people come in and they're dying. I mean, I have to talk with family and within a minute sometimes decide whether or not they want to have this person intubated or let them let them die. And mm-hmm. they're supposed to trust me. And I have to deliver that in that concise package. I mean, I, I have a, a joke. <laughs> it's kind of a little, uh, uh, maybe not, probably the best thing to say, but I have a joke that I, I think I can do a rectal exam on a patient within 30 seconds of eating them. <laughs> yeah, that's trust. But, but just think about that. I mean, that's a joke. That is a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point being, somebody can come in, I can meet somebody, and the trust of, of wearing a white coat, the trust of, of me talking to them, the trust of that, that they'll allow me to do a rectal exam. I mean, think about somebody you meet, and within a few minutes of meeting them, you're letting them stick their finger in your butt. I mean, just, just <laughs> yeah, think about that. And yeah. so I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for that, um, that trust that patients give to us, and I take it very seriously. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I've talked about it before, too, of the, the, um, the 
I guess, the esteem that we give doctors. And it's well-deserved because, you know, the training is rigorous, um, it's, it's demanding, and it weeds out anyone who, you know, doesn't have what it takes. And I think that that, you know, in our society, we look at doctors as, you know, we put them on a pedestal. And I think that that creates some power dynamics, but also it creates a level of, um, respect that we is deserved what's the spider-man quote with great with great power comes great responsibility right right? but i think that's uh that's real and i don't don't, i'm not one for putting doctors on a pedestal a pedestal i can't say the word Mm -hmm. right now but the i do you know i I just think that we have a job you know when you when you might when people come in you know for instance going to the, the rectal thing people are very um embarrassed about rectal bleeding or something like that mm-hmm. and they're they're they apologize sometimes when i have to do an examination and i'm like listen don't be don't, this is my job this mm-hmm. is what i do i'm here to help you um and i think that it's just like somebody who is a banker you know or a, you know somebody who cuts hair think about a society where you can't have somebody who can cut your hair you'd look ugly <laughs> you know i think that it's just i just fulfill one part of the role in society mm-hmm. so now uh I just had a strange tangent of a thought of, you know, we, when I was growing up, we jumped ramps with our bikes with no helmets and we skateboarded with no helmets and we did really dangerous stuff. Sure. You know, tramp, you know you've seen my kids you, on the trampoline. You learned with, many life lessons. <laughs> with, yeah. You've seen my kids on the trampoline with no net, you know, I mean, kind of dangerous parenting. Has there been improvements in safety with all these nerfing of everything or, or we still have the same amount of injuries. It's just sort of a, a, a feel good kind of. Well, I have have two, two, uh, two stories to tell in response to that. So first off, I don't know if you, if you don't know Andy, Andy is an excellent father. And, uh, one, (laughs) one thing that I always noticed and was very proud and would tell people about Andy is that he'd sometimes go on a Saturday morning, early in the morning, bring a bucket out and he would set it in the yard and this bucket would have a baseball glove, a baseball, a bat. And, to me, when I interpreted that, I never talked to him about that. I was just like, Andy said, you're out in the yard today, and I'll see you later. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was awesome. There's no Nintendo. There's no TV. It's you're outdoors. Here's some stuff. Entertain yourself. Be a kid. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just awesome. And I absolutely think that we are going away from that as a society, sadly. Um, I was in Spain doing a, a teaching trip with one of my colleagues at uh, a, a medical school in Pamplona, um, where I was a guest professor and um, did some teaching on emergency medicine. And what I noticed in one of the parks in Madrid was this giant, this absolutely giant climbing apparatus that kids were falling. I mean, you could fall 20 feet. You know, kids, I mean, realistically could, could die on that. Mm-hmm. But they're not, you know, and their parents are sitting there and they're letting them have the kids. Are, the kids are having the greatest time in their lives. And that's what I did as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it is crazy that we don't do that anymore. I have seen kids with femur fractures who fall off those kind of things. I have seen kids um, with injuries from whatever, but also I have kids who, you know, dislocate, you know, whatever joint um, just from roughhousing with their friends. I mean, mm. accidents are unavoidable. Yeah. And I think that insulating our kids too much is probably harmful. Now, I don't have children. I have one expecting in November, so we'll see if I, <laughs> we'll see how I, <laughs> how I actually do. Um, but. I, I think that we do insulate our kids quite a bit, um, but you know, I, as long as you're safe and you're thoughtful about it. So I would not send my kid out to play football without a helmet. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I would uh, not do anything that's too uh, you know risk averse. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I think boundaries is something that 
we try to set and enforce, but also kids need to learn yeah, the I'm, line. I'm a huge proponent of if a kid falls down, hits their knee, starts crying, you let them sit there for a second and they'll be fine. They'll yeah. stand up and they'll walk away. You don't yeah. go over there and coddle them and uh, you know hug them and be like, oh, sweetie, just let them chill out for yeah, a second. Yeah, because if we do that the first time they do it and there's not someone there to do it, then, absolutely, then they're not. They're going to have really psychological trauma, I guess. But also, you know, you've seen my kids rough house on, on the trampoline and in the yard and fights and stuff. And, you know, I've, I kind of just, you know, free range parenting. I, I've been, you know, I've heard it called and, and I've just, I let them find out where that line is. And when they cross it, they usually, the, 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 uh, results of crossing a line or, or the implications for crossing the line are immediate. Either get punched or you get excluded from the game or you, you learn as you get older. I mean, I was a pretty aggressive mountain biker, um, a few years ago and you, you wreck once or twice and you have a close call. You, you back up a little bit and and you realize that you can get hurt and bad things can happen. Yeah. I mean, it's a self-regulation thing too. And, and one other anecdote I would share is that, you know, my, kids would walk to school and back from more which is probably what six eight blocks or something like that and i would have some parents like wow you let your kids walk through the, by the park and all this stuff and and then other parents would come up to me like man i love how you just let your kids walk through the park and do you know and it's it's level of trust and i think it's also the privilege of living in a very safe community too which a lot of people we know don't have but i i Mm -hmm. I just fortunate enough to to allow that and allow them to figure out what is threats and what aren't threats and 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 not live in fear part of growing up and i i think that it's very important yeah and you're going to be a father soon so you get to go through all this stuff we'll see if i can talk the talk (laughs) (laughs) now back to background um you you know i know a little bit about uh your childhood you shared some things but can Mm -hmm. you can you go back and just you know maybe give us a little bit what you want to share and then how you decided that you wanted to be a doctor that's what i'm mainly getting at sure sure um so i grew up in uh, birmingham alabama in a suburb called hoover um we were in a few other places before that but that was pretty much my childhood and uh i uh, grew up in a revel uh, we were consistently below the poverty line um, growing up with our household and uh a lot of the w- reason we were able to stay in our house is because of assistance from my my grandparents and uh you know so that kind of forced me early on to get a job you know I was a brick mason when I was like 13 and had jobs consistently um, until medical school where you're not allowed to have a job <laughs> um <laughs> but uh, job. exactly that's, that is your job um and, uh, you know, so that, that kind of, uh, I think that did provide me a good work ethic. It kind of goes back to what we said about rising, raising a child. I mean, when you, when you work for a brick mason and you're, you're working up at four in the morning and you're going out to, to a job site and you're, ex- you're expected to do a job, I mean, you, <laughs> you better believe you, you come home sore and you appreciate a dollar. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I grew up in, you know, kind of a single mother household and, uh, you know, my, my mom had, had gone to college but not been able to finish and, uh, essentially I was the first person in my, my immediate family to go to college. And, um, my, I remember very early on my grandmother would, would say that he was going to be a doctor because I had very good grades and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was a type, very type A child, if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just try to imagine. <laughs> um, and, uh, my, uh, my grandmother would always say that and it just kind of stuck. I never really questioned it. Um, everybody went along with it. Oh, Steven's going to be doctor. And I never really thought about anything else, to be honest with you. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reason that, and I mean, in college I had to pick my major and I, uh, I randomly picked chemical engineering 
because my friend was doing it. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> and so I, I went to the University of Alabama and I uh, studied chemical engineering for a year. We started talking about reactor design and I was like, I do not like this. <laughs> I'm supposed to say roll tide or something. Yeah, roll tide. <laughs> so I ended up transferring to UAB where I completed a biomed- biomedical engineering degree, which was a little bit more of my, my style. But uh, the point being, I never really questioned being a physician. And then as I got into it and actually started seeing what a physician was, um, I started working in a pediatric office as a phlebotomist. Um, I really started to like it. Um, and it goes back to all the things you said. I mean, just the, the, the respect, the communication, the, the, uh, the, the relationship you develop with patients, um, and the knowledge thing. I love, I love learning and I love knowing things. And I think that's one of my drivers is I just, I just want to know things. I just want to know everything I can. I want to, you know, all the things I follow on Instagram are like history posts and, and stuff like this. And so anyway, but that's, that's kind of what got me that, uh, there. And, uh, you know, so. Well, uh, the power of suggestion, the grandmother saying it's, it's crazy. Be, I mean, what if she'd said I was going to be anything? I a mean, brick mason. <laughs> exa- well, I'll tell you, the, the brick mason I worked for, <laughs> kind of a funny guy. Uh, but anyway, he, he told me not to do this because okay. his back hurts. And and uh, maybe not the best thing, but he, <laughs> he would always, he'd look at his son and he would say, you, you see you see him? He's stupid. He's <laughs> he's going to do what I do. Right. Uh, you see Powell? He's going he's gonna to be a doctor. Um, and, and everybody's kind of went along with this and this is, it's strange. I just never, I just never questioned it. Well, that's a lesson I try to impart in my kids. It's like you either make your living with your back or your brain and your back doesn't last as long as your brain. So. Yeah. And it's not to say that that's not a, a, a honorable, uh, job. I mean, I don't think that what he said was accurate. I don't think his son was stupid, but it, it hurts and it's hard. Yeah. And, and you can just. You can choose whatever path you want to go to, and mm-hmm. uh, and certainly I have a lot of respect for manual labor. I'm currently remodeling my chicken coop, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, but you know, it, it is it's hard work, and mm-hmm. somebody's got to do it. Uh, my brother-in-law is an electrician, and and he does very well. Well, I think you know I did a lot of labor type things in in high school. I mean, I started working when I was twelve as a busboy and worked my way up through the kitchen, and then worked in a metal fabrication shop and. Um, you know, if, if you haven't hauled hay in the summer in the South, uh, you know, you really don't know what hard work is. I, I guess I do. I've never done that. Well, that sounds you, awful. you work for a brick mason <laughs> getting up at four. So I think, you know, um, but you know that I love your story because, you know, single mother, first generation college, you know, uh, financially challenged, let's say, and you rose above it because you saw what it took to get there and you chose, you know, you followed your interests um, as they developed and, and became what you are. So, so definitely a, a model of what, what can be done in this country of ours. That there, there are many stories like that. And I, I do think that at some point it's just, uh, you don't have a choice. Yeah. You know, some people who raise up with means, uh, which, you know, I, for instance, you know, my child will have more means than I will. So there's nothing against those kind of people, but, uh, it does when you have nothing to fall back on and nobody to fall back on, it does put you in perspective. I mean, of what could happen in your life. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't make it, you'll be on the streets. Yeah. And, what you know, I worry sometimes about that with my kids cause they don't lack for anything, you know? And, and I didn't really, when I grew up, I mean, we had so much freedom on the street that I grew up on. So that was a lot of the influences I had was just hanging out with 20 other kids all the time and, and just sort of Lord of the Flies development in that regard. But, uh, 
you know, the kids today, they, they come in and I heard the term uh, post-graduation depression the other day. I'm like, hmm. that's you. <coughs> it's, called so, real, it's called the real world. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's also we're so privileged that we make up our oppression. You know, we, we make up things to be sad about. Or I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to d- belittle actual depression. No, no. I, I know what you're saying. People, if, if, if people sometimes, I think, who feel that they're struggling in a first world country need to go to a third world country and see what struggling is. Exactly. Uh, go to Guatemala and go out into the countryside and see people who live in a hut and who inhale smoke and develop COPD mm-hmm. and their mother dies at 40. Uh, that that's, that's different. Who yeah. walk, who don't have shoes. Um, and then when you graduate, and you're you're sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> think about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but you know, I, I agree with you. We shouldn't. I, I I don't think we are. But belittling depression. But there are real, real bad things, and there's first world problems. Yeah. Um, and I think that sometimes we have uh, children who misbehave, who are anxious, who are children who need to go play, who need attention, and not who we, drugs, <laughs> who we label as ADHD, right? Who do not have ADHD. Yeah. And there is it is it is. Unbelievable how many children I see come to the ER with behavioral problems. And when I look at the situation, it is not the child. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is it is definitely um, parenting. Yeah. It's so. Well, and that goes back to the spaces that we create for children to have unstructured play. I think it's so important. And it's like I've heard the... The analogy is like when you come home and your dog's been in the house all day mm-hmm. and you open the door and they see oh, they, you and they, they're yeah. about to break in half. They're so excited to see you. I mean, that's what, you know, kids who have been sitting in a chair in school and told to you know, be quiet and, and just pay attention. And then they, and they don't have the recess. I mean, when we had school, I mean, back when I was in school, we had recess every day um, and then we had structured PE once a week. Sure. And and now they barely have structured PE. You know, on their on their special days they have structured PE, but they don't really have an hour recess. And we had recess. I was telling my kids the other day, we had knives at school, and when we didn't have anything uh, <laughs> planned, or if we were tired of kickball or dodgeball or whatever, we'd go out and get sticks and take our knives out and carve. Sure. You know, we used to take knives to school and think about how different today's society is for that. Yeah, even in um, in my high school, one person had to go to a secured lockdown high school because he they found a knife in his truck bed uh, in the uh, the the lockbox mm-hmm. from where he'd been fishing the mm-hmm. day before, and he got removed from our public school. Yeah, we had guys that bring guns on the bus because they were well, going hunting. That you know, I, I mean, know. it's a different world for sure, but and that's a little too far. But yeah, I mean, that happens. It happened then. Um, getting off topic here a little bit, but I will share one story. My son, my youngest son, took a wine tool to mm. school because I had a corkscrew and he thought it was cool. But it also had a little tiny knife that you cut the foil off the oh, wine yeah, yeah. bottle. And and that raised a big a big stink about that. So it was a, it was considered a weapon. So yeah, I uh, it's it's tough. I mean, for for school, I definitely think there's a lot of uh, hot topics right now too. But I mean, I think that in general, I think just we should not shelter our children too much mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, you know the, the world is real and they're going to encounter these things and uh, at some point they're going to go fishing. Yeah. And, and and I think a child needs to, for instance, be able to handle a knife safely. Mm-hmm. And I think it just comes back to instruction. I mean. Mm-hmm. I uh I learned how to my wife shot, uh, essentially taught me how to shoot a gun mm-hmm. <laughs> on our second date. Uh, how about that, right? Yeah, uh, she's she's from a small uh, town in, in North Alabama, but I mean her her father and and Charlene, you know, sh- showed me how to you know basically safely handle a weapon, mm-hmm. and you know that's important. Yeah, uh, because uh, you know if you 
you don't have that education. So yeah, bad things can happen. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Now, how much of that do you see in the ED gunshots and? Oh yeah, quite a quite a bit. Most of the time, people are minding their business, not doing anything. Um, this is what the story is. They're yeah. sitting on their porch. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you see it quite a bit. Um, and uh, it, you do have various hunting accidents. I've had a, a guy who was sprayed in the face with uh, with some birdshot, uh, kind of like. The Dick Cheney story, and mm-hmm. uh, just on an accident, um, I've had people who were who were shot um, sitting in their um, uh, in their home, getting out of the shower. A uh, bullet, stray bullet, went through the, the wall. Mm-hmm. And then obviously things like you know uh, illegal activities and, and yeah. uh, st- gang stuff. But um, yeah, quite a bit um, actually. So, are there any truths to the? I've always heard like full moon at the ED. So I didn't even. So the other day was a Friday the thirteenth and a full moon, and I worked in the ED and I I didn't even I didn't even think about it not for a second. And the other day, the next day, I was like, oh my gosh, I just worked. <laughs> and it was just a typical ED night. I okay, mean, so yeah. there's no real. Yeah, I mean, last night was a Monday. Mondays, if you want to know any kind of trend in the emergency department, Mondays are awful. Monday. Yeah, because people put off everything on the weekend, right? We prioritize our, quote, emergencies. And then on Monday, when we're done with the weekend and we have to go to work or something, for instance, we, we come to the ED because then it's important. Yeah, and it's gotten to the point where you can't ignore it, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then after holidays, like holidays, too, are very important because people who have not seen their loved ones in a long time, they come to Grandma's house and like, oh, my gosh, Grandma looks awful. Uh-huh. And we're going to take Grandma to the, the ED. And typically, that, or if they eat too much salt, after the holiday, mm-hmm. then they come to the ER. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the social connection part too. I think um, you know we we talk about the community extenders of the healthcare system, and we have here this group called Faith Health, and they go out and um, you know they're lay persons that go out and they just check on people who, mm-hmm. who don't have daily interactions who who can't wait till the holiday for their Absolutely. family. I mean, people to see who them. live by themselves. I mean, they're very often I have to hold people overnight and get a social work consult in order to get them placed in a assisted living facility or a nursing home or a rehab facility. Because um, like the other day I had a guy who had Parkinson's disease, old man, very nice. Um, he was, you know, uh, he did not have dementia. He could talk to me and he's like, listen, I felt tonight cause I'm unsteady. Mm-hmm. And he's, he hit his head through a glass table, had tons of lacerations over his head that I had to repair. And, uh, he was like, I'm afraid to go home. And he's like, I, I'm the same as I've been for the past few weeks. I'm just, I feel like I'm just, I'm unsteady. And so we kept him in the ER of night until his family could come the next day. We got a social work consult in order to safely discharge him. And that's mm-hmm. people who live by themselves. I mean, I help. I've fallen and I can't get up. I mean, that commercial was absolutely real. Right. You know, people should have a life alert on their, their loved ones who are older or bedridden. You know, they, they're helpless. Yeah. I mean, can you just imagine? I've, I've had so many people who fall and they're on their living room floor for eight hours and they have pressure ulcerations on their, on their, their hips and their, their wrist and from laying in that position because they literally cannot move. Yeah. So. Ouch. Well, yeah, that, that brings me to a, a story I saw uh, somewhere. It was some uh, community in one of the Nordic countries, I think, where they took, uh, they totally reimagined uh, um, an old folks home, I guess. Is that, mm-hmm. can we still say that? Yeah. Um, and what they did was create a farm. And they had chickens and goats, and they had chores for the hmm. residents. To kept them do. active, and it kept them active in the health 
improved and, and the social interaction improved and everything. And I think that's what we do. We tend to kind of forget about our old people mm-hmm. and they just, oh, <clears throat> grandma's just doing her thing. And grandma may be just laying there getting a, an ulcer versus being active, having a purpose. And I think that's what it comes down to. I remember I was in Arab, Alabama, working at a primary uh, doctor's office, Dr. Morgan, and he had a uh, patient who was in his eighties or nineties. He was really, really old, smoked a lot. So <laughs> who knows? Um, but he was still working on his farm. And, and I remember just in my mind thinking, why is this old, old man driving a tractor? This is crazy. And, and then we, we kind of chatted about it. I mean, and literally the, the, the thought was, is if he stops doing that, he's going to die. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's something that's keeping people active. And I, so I've never heard of that farm, um, I guess assisted living facility, but uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, right. And just keeping, and that's why I mean, facilities that have golf. I mean, I, I know those are the pricier assisted living facility, but if you have a golf, think about what people are doing every day as opposed to what they would be doing, sitting in front of a TV, right? Watching the prices right all day. I yeah. mean, so yeah, uh, being active, having a purpose, though. I think that's the big, big thing. Is when you know a lot of people when they retire. Yeah, you know, they I, don't want to <laughs> go kicking and screaming, and then you hear about them within a year, they're gone. Yeah, because they just uh, don't have that thing to keep them motivation. Yeah, I even I think I remember, recall reading about some kind of a facility where they were they involved a assisted living facility in a in a nursery. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but I think mm-hmm. it's along the same lines. Well, I think we could bring that back to today's younger generation and the lack of purpose and meaning in in their lives. You know, they're told. You know, most of our society tells kids you got to go to college because that's yeah. going to ensure your success. And then people who can't succeed in yeah. in college, they find themselves... A college degree does not equate to like your ability to be a productive member of society. I mean, for instance, I'm a biomedical engineer. Okay, mm-hmm. I have a minor in biology, chemistry, and math. Mm-hmm. I can barely add some days. Okay, you know, like <laughs> right. it's it's pathetic compared to the, the the differential equations I was doing in the back in and in, in, in college. And the point being, just because you have a degree doesn't mean you can do that job. Mm-hmm. And just because you have a degree doesn't mean that you can uh, you should you're entitled to a job. Rather, mm-hmm. um, for instance, you know, my brother-in-law is uh, went to a a technical school for two years is debt free and has been working since he was like 21 yeah. from a financial perspective. He is years ahead of me yeah. from a, uh, a life perspective. I mean, he's had, he has a career. He is a senior person and he's younger than I am mm-hmm. at his job. And he, you know, it's just crazy. He does not have a quote, a, you know, a, a degree from our standards, like a bachelor's degree or a master's or a doctorate. But he has a very successful job and he's very, I mean, he works for, he'd work for the TVA. Now he's, you know, just the thought of that, I mean, I think that technical school, community college, um, those are actual real things. I yeah, mean, well, skills. I mean, they can't hire enough welders and line right. pullers. And, I mean, I met a, I met an owner of a, uh, of a labor um, company that basically he just told me he cannot find people who have, you know, just basic skills to do basic jobs and labor. Yeah, he cannot. He cannot find enough people. Well, we you you talked about starting to work at at thirteen, and I started working when I was twelve, and <laughs> and we just I don't see that many opportunities anymore for oh. kids to be to find you know work that's challenging, that's out of their ordinary, and that might give them like you know you realize that this is hard work, and, and <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do this no. all my life. So that I mean, some of those are the best lessons, and, and I think. You know, for me, it was variety. I just love doing a lot of different things and, and being social um, and, and, and you, you know, learning new skills and applying those. And, and 
you know, I struggle because I've got a almost 15 year old at home and a 13 or yeah, just turned 13. And, you know, they want to do, they have the energy to do stuff. So I send them to the Y to work out or play mm-hmm. basketball or something. But, you know, at 14, I'd already worked my way up to the cook line, mm-hmm. you know, from, from busboy to dishwasher to cook and was on my way to the grill. You know, that yeah. was the progression. Um, but I just don't see those opportunities uh, for kids. And, and that, that worries me because uh, kids are sitting idle. There's a, a huge untapped workforce. And some sure. people might say, oh, well, we got rid of child labor law. Yeah, and that's what I was going to I think people view it as child labor. I mean, yeah. to, to if somebody, I mean, what I was doing was also technically, you know, illegal probably from the yeah. government perspective. And at 14, you have to get a work permit, right? And then mm-hmm. I worked at a grocery store where I made $5 an hour. Yeah. You know, bagging groceries as opposed to what I was, what, $10, $15 an hour where, where I was working before. And so, I, I don't know. I, I think that this kind of goes back to what we do as a society, right? We remove mm-hmm. the uh, the giant climbing gyms and we put in these tiny little fall safe free padded um sue you know you can't sue me (laughs) yeah and you still have to sign the waiver. yeah exactly and so i think that um i don't know i i if if i were in charge i think i would i would change a lot of things and i would just let kids be kids um accidents are going to happen and they're unavoidable sure we can mitigate risk um but i think that at some point we just have to be i mean just what would you want and what did you do yeah I, i remember i uh I, I read this uh, this meme or something like that where it says like how can a generation raised by South Park become so offended by everything? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and it, it is so. It is those those words are deep. I mean, yeah. how how true is that? Well, I think we we've nerfed everything physically, so now we're looking for you know verbal ways to be oppressed and and be offended. And you know, I back to I, I don't want to get off on that tangent because I'll go deep. But <laughs> uh, back to the child labor. I mean, I was twelve busting tables, and there would be times where the owner would come, hey. Y'all, and there were several of us, and he said, y'all go in the bathroom, and I'll tell you when it's safe to come out. <laughs> and because, like, the, the, you know, somebody there who who might be, you know, looking for that sort of thing was sure. paying a visit, and and then he would come and say, okay, y'all can come on out now. Because we were under the table. I mean, we were making $15 for about, I don't know, four and a half hours worth of work, you know, so, you know, cash, you yeah. know, everything was off the books. But it was such a valuable well, even, things, even things like uh, mowing the grass. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember my, my buddy and I uh, started SNS Lawn Service when no, I was I've younger. That, yeah. And uh, it end, ended up being just me mowing everybody's <laughs> grass because he, he was a very lazy person. But uh, in general, though, it just, uh, you know, just having the opportunity to do something, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, these lemonade stands. I love yeah. lemonade stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love like giving like $5 or something like that to cover the cost because yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah, you don't make it up. Losing exactly. But, uh, but I guess the, it's, the, the point being, the effort. Yeah. yeah it just learning the value of a dog. I mean, for instance, uh, your daughter, you know, she would uh, babysit our dog and do things. And we would, I, I remember a few times I tried to negotiate with her. I was like, well, how much do you think your time is worth? You know, like, mm-hmm. do you want, how about a dollar a day? And she'd like, she'd be like, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. And, you know, those principles of just, mm-hmm. uh, Learning what you know, what you want, and what's what's worth it, and what's not worth it, and yeah, um, so yeah, go. It, I I'm struggling right now. I have an 18 year old, and and she's out trying to make it, but I don't think she has put a value on her time like she should. And I think I I don't know that. How do you impart that as a parent and as a mentor to try to 
get people to understand their worth when society has a way of saying, oh, you're still just a kid. And, yeah. you know, you, you know, oh, don't send them out of the house too soon. And they can yeah. be on your insurance till 26 now and, and all this <laughs> stuff. It's like, that's ridiculous. You know, we need to prepare these kids to get out and get after it and realize their worth and their potential. Yeah. And I think realizing their worth is a very important part of what you said, because I think that, um, for instance, like people think that if they're not going to be something for instance, like a doctor, Mm-hmm. They are not worth whatever. I mean, it's just the pressure we put on children to become so successful is just insane. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be, to for somebody, I'm not going to say to go back to society, have a society where you cannot have your hair cut mm-hmm. and to see what your society looks like. I mean, <laughs> then you'll realize the value of a barber. Yeah. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with doing that kind of yeah. stuff. And, and I do, you know, f- certainly we have a, we don't prioritize people and it's hard to, have a living wage doing some things like that, which is unfortunate mm-hmm. um, and another topic entirely. But the point being, I mean, I think you can, as long as you're happy with what you do and that's what you want to do, you should be proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at my plumber, you know, I had a lot of plumbing work when I was getting that house ready to sell yeah. and these guys came and they were young mm-hmm. and they had such a great work ethic, work ethic mm-hmm. and they only did quality work and yeah. they would tell me what my cost options are they're very honest yeah and i've hired them back for every other job i mean yeah. that's what it's about they deliver and they love what they do and they can do what you and i cannot do they have a skill yeah and or they can do it a lot better than yeah <laughs> you or i can do it yeah i mean and that's you know there are no i mean you might run across a bad plumber once in a while but they won't last long no you know because the marketplace will just throw them out no way yeah, yeah. i mean especially in today's word of mouth uh uh, amplification through social media and, and all the ways we can tell people about a bad experience. So, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, um, you know, everyone's got uh, their horror hospital story. Mm-hmm. Tell us a a, a a great story that I don't want. You know, we, there's plenty of bad stories people. Have, oh yeah, but, but no one ever shares <laughs> their wonderful experience. Probably my. Uh, let's see, I have a few. Um, one of my favorite things is when a child comes in holding their arm and they can't move it. And mom is just distraught beside herself. Thinks her arm is, the arm is broken. Very often that maybe she had been, she, there was a, maybe they were, they were walking through the grocery store and a cart was coming at her. She had to yank her child out of the way to, to, to save him. Or they were playing in the yard and they were spinning him around in circles. Um, and they come in, they, they hold their arm and they're not moving it. And, Instantly, as a as a physician, you know, who who's trained in emergency medicine, I know what this is. Instantly, uh, it's a nursemaid's elbow, and I love this because I walk in the room and I'm examining him, and I just twist his wrist, and it pops, and he screams, and I'm like, "I'll see you in ten minutes, mom." And uh, I come back in there, and he's moving his arm. Mom thinks I'm the hero. <laughs> I fist pound the kid. He fist pounds me with that that arm that he wasn't moving, right. and it's just the it's the greatest feeling. I that bet. that is. That is my, oh my gosh. Yeah. Because it's not even, it's the fact that somebody comes in with something, you fix it and then they think you're awesome. That's that feeling. Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite thing. (laughs) Well, great. Well, great. Well, Stephen Powell, um, amazing next level human, uh, hero to children, (laughs) soon to be father. Um, I appreciate you coming on this morning. Thanks, Andy.